Good evening. Tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. We're going to be talking again about the uh, times in which we're living. And uh, I'm just so thankful we have this chance to go through God's Word together. Uh, we've talked about how the book of Revelation is uh, largely borrowed language from the book of, uh, well, not just from the book of Daniel, but from the Old Testament. And uh, we're, we're uh, going to be looking some at that tonight. We're going to be talking more about how we can face the future not with fear or trepidation or with, uh, you know, uncertainty, but with confidence because of the book of Revelation. Many times people think of the book of Revelation as being something scary, something that they should uh, be afraid or maybe uh, have nightmares after they read. But that's not what we find when we look more closely at the book of Revelation, when we try to understand what it's really saying to us. Uh, what God's, God is saying to us in his word. And so, so far in the seminar, we've, we've been looking at the book of Daniel. We looked at Daniel chapter 2, and we saw how Bible prophecy, end-time Bible prophecy, does not fail. Some of the greatest minds, greatest generals, greatest empires have tested what God's word said. Remember those seven words, they shall not cleave one to another, talking about that iron and clay mixture and the feet of the image of Daniel chapter 2? And how there have been so many, so many great minds and great men throughout time who have tried to test these words. And, and yet we still see Europe divided into various nations today. Uh, we looked at Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 3. And how the issue in end time Bible prophecy we see beginning right there in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends had to make a decision. What was the decision they had to make? Who are you going to what? Obey. Are you going to obey God? Or are you going to obey man? And they had to make that decision there in Daniel chapter 1. Now, if we didn't get that clear enough, after we have the prophecy of Daniel 2, which is sort of the introduction to end-time symbolic prophecy, it's bookended by Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel chapter 3 is the story of the plain of Dura. And there, once again, Daniel's three friends had to make the decision, who are we going to obey, right? Are we going to obey God and die? Or are we going to obey man and live? And they had to make this decision and this, this uh, carries down to the book of Revelation. We looked in Revelation chapter 13, how the image is formed again in the last days. And again, God's people have to make a decision. Who are we going to obey? We're going to obey God or are we going to obey man? And so we're going to be unlocking more of this as we go along. But, you know, in order for us to really have an understanding of what God is trying to tell us through the book of Revelation, we have to understand more about the lion on the uh, the lion on the th the lamb on the altar and the lion on the throne. There we go. The the lamb on the altar and the lion on the throne. You remember how when we came to the book, the end of the book of Revelation, John the Revelator. He after talking about all of these things for 22 chapters, which some people think are scary. In fact, John the Revelator, when he got to the very end of it, Jesus says to him, "Behold, I come quickly," and he says, "Even some, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come." Uh, John wasn't afraid of these events transpiring. He wanted to see them happen, right? And why was that? I think it's because he had a personal relationship with the Jesus that is revealed even throughout the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles this evening, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5 to begin with. We're going to be looking at these verses which right away give these two, uh, these two uh, descriptions of we're going to see that it's the same person um, being described, Revelation chapter 5, and um, we're going to look at verse 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. If you have your Bibles, um, and uh, if you could just say amen when you're there. All right, let's go. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, we're going to be talking more about this passage and the seven seals and this whole Revelation 4 and 5 tomorrow night. But for now, we're just looking at these two verses. Notice what it says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what's the next phrase? The root of David. Now, the way Bible prophecy works, we don't just decide, well, I think this means such and such, right? We can't just, we can't just use our own rationale, our own reasoning. We have to look at how the Bible interprets itself. 
Now, I looked, and the lion is, there's, there's, uh, there's only one time in the book of Revelation that this person is referred to as the lion. So that doesn't help us a whole lot, although we can go back to the, the, uh, to the Old Testament, and we can find multiple passages which would seem to indicate this is talking about this person. But there's a foolproof method. If we just look in that next phrase, the root of David, you see how it's, it's a, there's a comma, the root of David. These are two phrases describing the same person, right? The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Hold your finger right here in Revelation chapter 5, and look with me in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. All right, we're going to be coming right back. So just uh, keep a finger or a piece of paper there or something. Look with me in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. And here we have no doubt about who is speaking because he introduces himself. Notice with me, he says, I who? I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am, what does he say? The root and offspring of David. So who's the root of David? Jesus is the root of David, right? Jesus is the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So here in Revelation chapter 5, we have no reason to doubt who is being spoken of when it talks about the Lion of Judah, right? The Lion of Judah is Jesus. He's the, the Lion of Judah, the root of David. He has prevailed, it says, to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Again, more on that tomorrow. Verse 6, And he beheld, beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a what? What does it say? A lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the, war, all the earth. Now we see here that it's pretty clear from the book of Revelation, comparing scripture to scripture, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, right? We can agree with, um, with the Bible on that, that it's pretty clear. What about this second animal, the, the lamb as it had been slain? I mean, that's pretty hard to miss, isn't it? I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty uh, self-evident. But nonetheless, we can see as we, as we compare Scripture to Scripture once again, we can see that this is exactly portraying Jesus, the Lamb that had been slain in Revelation. In fact, Revelation 13, 8, it talks about him as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Did you know that even before the world was created, God already had a plan? Evidently, that's what that verse tells me. God already had a plan that if sin should arise there would be a sacrifice. There would be a savior because God is a God of love. But um, we find that as we compare scripture with scripture, we can easily confirm that Jesus is described as the lamb slain. Notice with me John chapter 1 and verse 29. John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the what? The sin of the world, the lamb of God. Who was he talking about? He was introducing Jesus, wasn't he? He was announcing Jesus as the Messiah before the world. And so here he's saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We mentioned Revelation 13 and verse 8. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now why would the Lamb have to be slain to take away the sins of the world? Why would it, or why was it, that Jesus would have to die on Calvary's cross? The Bible's pretty clear about that too. In Romans chapter uh, 6 and verse 23, another familiar verse to many of us, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. Now some people say, well, you know, God can't be loving because, I mean, why would he kill people who disobey him? Have you ever heard that kind of reasoning, that kind of rationale? And I can understand what they're saying. But, you know, I have a little bit of a problem with the basic underlying presumption they're making. They're presuming that God sat up in heaven one day and he said, hmm, what should I do if they disobey me? I know what I'll do. I'll just kill them. Now, if God was like that, wouldn't it be sort of hard to love him? If he was just this arbitrary God that made this, this unilateral decision that if someone should disobey him or disregard him or go against his government, that they should just be annihilated, killed, done away with. That would be sort of arbitrary and unloving, and I don't know if he would even be that just. I don't think that that's the way God is. In fact, the way I understand it, we don't have time to go into this in great detail, Again, tomorrow we get to talk more about some of these things, especially here in Revelation 4 and 5. 
But I believe that God is the source of life. Okay, that's the underlying presumption that I'm just going to put out there today without having time to to prove it. You can go and you can read in John chapter 1, the first few verses, if you question about that. Um, You can, we'll we'll look at other verses. But um, if God is the source of life, then separation from God means separation from what? From life. And that changes my whole paradigm, how I view God, doesn't it? Because if God isn't arbitrarily saying, I'm going to kill people who don't agree with me, but instead is saying, look, if you separate yourselves from me, you're going to die, there's a difference, isn't there? If God, God could be loving and saying, hey, separation from me brings death. And I believe that's what the kind of God that, that is describing this truth to us tonight, this truism. When it says, for the wages of sin is death, I don't think it's an arbitrary choice that God made. I think he's just describing a fact. Because the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Now, why would the wages of sin be death? Because it separates us from the source of life. It separates us from God himself who created us. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 makes this very clear. Your iniquities or sins have separated you from who? From God. So there's a reason why God is sort of against sin. It's not because he's against us. It's because he doesn't like anything that separates us from him because he loves us. And so he tells us the truth, which I'm glad he does. He tells us the truth when he says the wages of sin is death. Does this make sense? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Is this, is this rational? You see, we could, we could serve a God out of fear, but God doesn't want us to serve him out of fear. He wants us to serve him out of love. God is the source of all life. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they began to die. Every one of us has sinned, and we're all under the sentence of death. We, uh, we all have um, one thing that's certain in life, as they say, death and taxes, right? Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. So this is, the, this is, the, uh, this is what the, the Apostle Paul is trying to help us understand. It's not that God is trying to get even with us or trying to see how many people he can eliminate. It's that God is trying to save people, and we have to realize what the problem is. The problem is sin. And when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. When we separate ourselves from God, we separate ourselves from life. The consequences of sin is death. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us here in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. How many of us have this problem? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't think there's anyone here. In fact, I know there's not even anyone here except we believe that we believe that Jesus by his presence is here, right? He's by his spirit. He says where two or three gather together in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. So, but none of us physically here, humanly here are are exempt from this passage. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We live in a broken world with broken people, broken hearts. And it's because all of us have been affected by this leprosy of sin. Romans continues, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none that seek after God. They have all turned aside. There is none who does good, no, not one. Our original parents, Adam and Eve, chose to cut themselves off from God by disobeying him and going their own way. And Adam would die because of his sin. And so too would all who descended from him, including each one of us. The bad news is that we're destined for eternal death unless someone saves us. The good news is that someone has. And that's what the Lamb of Revelation is all about. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace, by what? By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we don't deserve to be saved. That's why we talk about grace. That's why Paul uses that word grace. Grace means unmerited favor, right? Something we didn't deserve. We don't deserve, and it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm a good enough person. I suppose I should be able to to be part of God's kingdom. No, we can't do that because simply there's nothing we can do. Even if we could somehow have perfect righteousness for the rest of our lives, starting tonight, this second, 
Not another, another wrong thought, not, not another wrong motive, not another wrong um, desire. Everything perfect. We couldn't atone for the things we've done in the past. It's sort of like anyone here, you, know, you don't have to raise your hands. Um, anyone here ever had a citation for outstanding over-the-road performance? Um, you know, when you see those blue lights behind you. And uh, you say, officer, I'm so sorry, you know. I tell you what, I'll make up for that speeding. I was only going 120. I'll make up, I'll make up for that speeding by driving the speed limit the rest of my life. What's he likely to say to you? Well, he's likely to say to you, listen, mister, or missus, you're supposed to drive the speed limit the rest of your life anyway. You can't make up for what you've done in the past by doing better in the future. It's impossible. We've all sinned. We've all come short. We've all missed the mark, you might say in the Greek there, come short of the glory of God. And nothing we can do will make us better. A person with a fatal illness who never recognizes that they have that disease or seeks medical help is certain to die. So the first and the most, I shouldn't say most important, but one of the most important things, the first thing that we have to have is a realization that we have a problem, that we need a Savior, that we need salvation, that we need our sins forgiven. So Romans 6.23 goes on and says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What does it say? The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So salvation is a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't buy it. Yet many people believe that human beings somehow earn or merit forgiveness and eternal life by doing good deeds. Did you realize that's a human tendency? We sometimes look at other people groups and we say, well, those people, they're trying to earn their salvation. But I don't think it's something we should just be pointing fingers at. I think it's a human tendency. If we look in the Bible, the people tried to feel good about themselves by the things they externally did. That's a human problem that has been throughout our fallen history since the very beginning. But many people may seek divine favor by unusual acts. Some of them you're probably familiar with. You're familiar that in some parts of the world, people will do certain, certain acts of of painful self-punishment to try to make themselves holier, to make themselves better, um, walking on beds of nails, um, the painful self-flagellation, beating themselves, trying to, trying to make sure that they stop the, 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 the carnal nature, the sin that's in them. In fact, uh, throughout the Middle Ages, this was a popular theory. And the Bible even says, he that suffers in the flesh, Peter tells us, he that suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. And people took that literally. They thought if they could just inflict enough bodily pain upon themselves, they could become holier. And the more pain you could endure, the more holy you must be. Do you think that really is how God saves us? I mean, that's not what it says. It says not of works. It's by grace. It's a gift has nothing to do with how much pain we can cause upon ourselves. Other people walk barefoot on hot coals in their search for a spiritual experience or self-improvement. Some believe that they've gained merit or uh, gained credit for a future life by building temples or by feeding the holy men. One of the saddest things that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of really sad things in this world, but I remember one time I was in a small village in India, and we were building a church there, and this this particular day, we had just arrived, and, and we were getting to know some of the people that we were there to work with, and throughout the village, there was this cart being pulled, pulled by oxen, and the oxen, you can tell, you know, it's, just, it's not just a farm cart, because the oxen are, are decked up in lots and lots of garlands, like um, of flowers. What do you call those? Like lays in Hawaii? Well, in India, they do a lot of that too. And they, these, they'll, have these, they'll have these orchid lays that are like this big around, just solid orchids, and they're like four feet long. And they, they're all draped all over the oxen and, these, and it's pulling a cart. And in the cart was a holy man. And at every house, they would stop. And every house, and I say the word house, I use the word house with a little, a little liberally, I guess you might say. These were more like huts. Um, you're talking dirt floors and thatch roofs and, you know, some pieces of cardboard or something for the walls. 
But in front of every house, the cart would stop and out would come a bowl of rice or a bowl of food. And there's a, on the cart, there's a big bowl, heaping bowl. And out of that little hut would come their rice and they'd be giving their rice away. And you know they don't have much to eat. Why are they doing that? It's because they believe. They believe that by giving these holy men this food, that they're earning credit in the afterlife. They're going to be reincarnated into a better being. Um, that's what they believe. And I can't fault them for believing. I believe they, they, they believe it honestly, right? But if you're honest, does it make you right? What does the Bible say? The Bible says salvation isn't through our works. It's by, it's by grace through faith. For some, one of the surest ways of earning favor with God is a pilgrimage to Mecca or dying in defense of their faith. Yes, the religion of many is a religion of works, but before we exclude ourselves, like I said, I think this is a human problem, not a they problem, right? And sometimes even we in the Christian world, we can pat ourselves on the back because we're not as bad as other people. We do good things, right? We go to church, we, whatever we do, we, we can feel good about it, and, and sometimes we start to trust in us instead of trusting in an impossible impossible miracle of salvation that comes, though we don't deserve it. Many young Christians unwittingly do the same thing. They follow the golden rule. They give their tithes and offerings. They follow, um, they follow, uh, follow uh, principles of, of good living, thinking they earn favor with God. But we can't earn favor with God because we already have favor with God. Jesus has already come and died for us. And nothing we do can make us Him love us more. He's the lamb, remember, Revelation's lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. He loved us while we were yet enemies. He died for us. That's the amazing thing about my Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We cannot save ourselves by our good works. We must depend on God's grace and His love and favor, which He freely gives us. But why, some people would ask, why would the God, if the God of the Bible is true, a God who created the universe, who sustains all living things, why would He care about us anyway? Why wouldn't He just forget this old rebellious little planet and abandon us to our selfish ambitions to suffer the results that we deserve, the results of our sins? Why would God do that? Now, I think the answer is very, very simple. It's found in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. God can't stop being God. God is love, the Bible says, right? And love, the, the love that is describing God is not the, the type of superficial or, or shallow love that we sometimes know about here in this world. It's the, the Greek word there is agape love. It's undying, unconditional, unselfish love. The type of love that loves even though nothing is going to be reciprocated. That's the agape love that John does, the agape word that John uses to describe the God of heaven. God is love. Now, some of you are parents. Anyone here parents? I suppose you know what it's like to have a baby begin to fuss and cry, even in the middle of the night. You try to make things better. You try to uh, walk the floor and sing to the baby and, and try the advice of friends and family, but sometimes nothing works. That baby's just going to cry. Now, let me ask you a question. No matter how tired you are, no matter how long the baby is sick, do you ever think of just giving the baby away? Maybe you shouldn't be honest there, but um, seriously, though. Do you ever... Do you, no, because the more the baby is hurting, the more you feel for it, right? You're the parent. If you weren't the parent, if you're the babysitter, yes. Yeah, you might just think of giving the baby away. But no, you love the baby even more because he or she is suffering. And that's what God is like. Never once did God consider abandoning planet Earth. He wouldn't just walk away because he created us. He loves us. God is love. And he created us with an individuality and in his own image. And he loves us individually. And so God, God is like parents. He, he won't just walk away and leave us to our misery. He wants to do whatever he can to help make us better. 
to restore us to the plan that he originally had for us. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 also describes the God of heaven. The Lord is long-suffering, it says, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But that how many? All. Does it really mean all? Do you think the Bible means what it says, friends? I don't think there's any way for us to interpret the Bible unless we start believing the Bible, okay? We've got to first just believe it. And when it says all, he's not willing that any, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. These type of exclusive and inclusive words, exhaustive words, they really mean what they say. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, regardless of how bad or how good you are. God loves you and wants to save you. He's not willing that you and I should die. Do we deserve death? Oh, yes. We deserve death. I deserve death. Because the wages of sin is death. So this raises a conundrum. How can God be just, fair, because that means we should get what we deserve, right? And at the same time be loving and merciful, not wanting us to perish, wanting to save us. How can God be both at the same time? How can he be in a question that could be raised right out of the book of Revelation? How can God be both the lion and the lamb? Can he be? Is that possible? You see, I believe just this kind of God was revealed to Moses in the mount. In Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7, this is the introduction to God, the description of God that Moses was given. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gr- I'm sorry, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now that all sounds pretty lamb-like, doesn't it? Gracious, forgiving, long-suffering, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, now you see the two sides of God? In Revelation, he's the lion, he's the lamb. In Exodus, he's loving, gracious, long-suffering, merciful, but he's also fair and just, right? Isn't that a part of who God is? He has to be. And by the way, friends, while the Bible makes this clear and while Revelation makes this clear, I just want to add this in for a little bit of it, for, for what it's worth, Okay. How many times did I tell you Jesus described as the lion in the book of Revelation? Only one time. Do you know how many times he's described as the lamb in the book of Revelation? 24 times. I love that. It's not, it's Revelation, as it says in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's supposed to help us get to know him better. And it, he's over and over described as the lamb in the book of Revelation. So we're guilty. We should be punished. How can God be just and fair and merciful all at the same time? How could he be both the lion and the lamb? Only God could find a solution to this conundrum. Only God could find that answer. He found a perfect substitute to die in our place. Now, if he had taken one of the fallen angels, maybe a created being, and he'd say, he'd said to this person, you know, Um, I want you to go down and die in the place of Chester. Would that be just? Would it be fair? It wouldn't be, would it? There was only one way that God could be both the lion and the lamb. There's only one way that could be just and fair and yet be merciful and gracious and long-suffering and forgiving. And that was if he himself took the penalty that I should be buried and died in my place. That was the only way. The only way that he could be both the lion and the lamb. John, the beloved disciple, described it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why is this important? It's important because if we are going to be living in the last days when Jesus comes again the second time, if we're going to be in that group of people, look up and say, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. If we're going to be a part of that last day, people who like Daniel, like the three Hebrews on the plain of Dura, stand for the right and choose to serve God, we have to know the God we're serving, right? We have to know the God 
that we're obeying. So Jesus came to live on the earth as a human being. He faced the same problems and temptations that we face. He lived a life of obedience and he was not only our example as a man living here on this earth, he also was the God who created us, whose law had been broken. He took upon himself the guilt of every person who would ever live and died in his or her behalf. He died in my behalf. And that's why he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lion, just and fair. The lamb, loving and merciful. Because Jesus took our punishment and made it his. No one else but the God who made us, the God whose law had been broken, could, could reconcile these two worlds of justice and mercy. And yet that is what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. You see, this was illustrated throughout the Old Testament. God's people, the Israelites, daily witnessed in, in symbols and ceremonies an illustration of God's plan to redeem fallen mankind. The daily sacrifices which his people would take to the tabernacle to be offered in, at the sanctuary there. How many of you were here for the Messiah's mansion when that came through town? Quite a few of you. Um, it's amazing to see what these people were being taught in the sanctuary. It's amazing. It's even more amazing that they weren't prepared to accept the Redeemer when he came because it was all pointing forward to Jesus. It was all trying to prepare them for what was to come. The, de the deliverer who would die for their sins and restore them to himself. So when a person sinned, he went to the sanctuary, taking with him a sacrificial animal. If you could, you took a lamb. And um, you would confess your sins on the head of that lamb, not to the priest, but simply transferring symbolically your guilt to that innocent sacrifice. And then the sinner himself would take the knife provided by the priest and it would slice the throat of that lamb that would take the life of that lamb. Was it unpleasant? Yes, but that was the way it was supposed to be because sin is unpleasant, friends. Sin destroys lives. Sin destroys hearts and homes. Sin has separated us from God and God wanted the world to know that there was a high cost to low living. You know, if there's anything the sinner gets credit for, remember, the sanctuary service is a, is a, is a type or a symbol of the real plan of salvation, right? If there's anything the sinner gets credit for, any works that we're responsible for, it's only this part right here, taking the life of the Lamb. We killed Jesus. That's the only works that we can take any credit for, and that's not something I'm very proud of. The rest of the sanctuary service was done by the priest, and that's representing Jesus, our high priest. Uh, we're going to be talking a whole night about the sanctuary because, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, I've got to finish here tonight, but in the, in the book of Revelation, the sanctuary is used as a key to help us understand even the timing of the prophecies. Um, in, the, in the book of Revelation, just to give you a little bit of a preview, every once in a while there's a window opened where John sees the sanctuary in heaven. And it just seems random. I saw in, in, John, John, in Revelation chapter 1, he sees Jesus standing among the candlesticks, the seven golden candlesticks. And each, each time there's this little vignette where he sees heaven opened, sees heaven opened, sees heaven opened. He's actually following through the different stages of the sanctuary service. And it helps us, it's a key to help us unlock the meaning and the timing of the various prophecies of the book of Revelation. Very, very fascinating. We'll spend some time on that. But here we find that the sanctuary, the, the sinner takes the life of the lamb and, the, and then the high priest does the rest of the work. Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary, the real price paid for our sins, was far more unpleasant. The, the sacrifices made in the sanctuary only pointed forward to the innocent lamb of God who would die in our place for our sins. Jesus was the true sacrifice. Jesus was the one introduced by John when he said, um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do we know he was innocent? The Bible tells us this. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 tells us, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Though he was innocent, Jesus was beaten and mocked and sentenced to be crucified. One of the worst forms of execution ever invented. He could have resisted. He could have escaped. You've probably heard the song. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have, but he couldn't 
do that and also save you and save me. In fact, uh, those who were standing at the foot of the cross began mocking him and saying he saved others. Himself he cannot save. And unwittingly they were speaking the truth. He could not both save himself and save others. And Jesus made the decision not to save himself, but to save us, to save you and to save me. As God placed upon him the sins of the whole world, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does sin cause? Sin causes separation from God, doesn't it? And Jesus on the cross of Calvary was experiencing what you and I should have to face if we were one day to find the entirety of what sin does as it separates us from God. If we were to be dying without hope, without any uh, assurance, without any peace, Jesus was feeling that separation from the Father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was treated as we deserve that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins and suffered our death, that we might have his life. And in this way, in this way, God could be both just and also merciful. He could be both the lion and also the lamb. Not because of any good thing that we've done, but because of what God has done in Jesus. When the Philippian jailer, you remember the story, and the Philippian jailer thought that all the prisoners had escaped. And in fact, Paul and Silas were there. They were singing and everyone was there. And he was overcome by what he had seen in these two missionaries and, and what they had been preaching. Perhaps he had already been aware of it there in the little town of Philippi. But that night when he came to the men and they asked, what can I do that I too might be saved? What did Paul tell him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Can we read that together tonight? What does it say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What an amazing promise. Now, this doesn't mean we just believe that there's some fact, some intellectual assent, because James tells us in James chapter 2 and verse 19 that the devils also believe and tremble, right? So it's not just knowing that it's true, but it's a matter of taking our will and our choice and, and choosing to believe in Jesus as our personal Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you might be saved. Is that what it says? No, it says that you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We can understand this better as we look at what, what we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we trust Him, right? We, we surrender our life to Him. We, we acknowledge Him in everything we do. We give ourselves to him, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It means believing that it is not what we can do that can save us, but what Christ did for us on Calvary. No matter how good a person I try to be, I, Chester Clark, can never believe in myself enough or trust in myself enough to save myself. But if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if I trust in him to save me, then I will be saved as the promise is given to us. I will be saved. So the lamb which we mentioned is found 24 times in the book of Revelation. It symbolizes that the lamb never forces, it never coerces. There's no deception, there's no guile. It, the lamb symbolizes freedom and innocence and transparency. You know, God is not a God who is going to force any of us. I remember one time I was preaching in Russia. And I was, um, I was in this uh, auditorium of the theater in town, and a lot of uh, young people were coming to the meetings, and I had a question box. The question box was up next to the, on the stage. Of course, it was, a, it was a high stage, probably something like this, but it was a much larger building, of course. And um, there was like, I don't know, two or three, four aisles that came down through the theater, down to the front of the stage. And, and um, all throughout the meeting, you'd think it'd be a little distracting, but I guess they were used to it, and... All throughout the meeting, there, was, there were people standing up and working their way out and coming down the aisle and dropping a question in the question box. Sometimes we would have 120 questions in one night. Um, now, what do you do with 120 questions? Um, you don't answer them all. I, would, I take two or three a day, and um, some of them were comical. Some of them were just, you know, yeah, they weren't all questions, but some of them were honest, sincere questions. And I remember one question stands out of my memory from that series. There was uh, one question that came that said, why do you come here? Why do you come here and force us 
to believe the Bible like you do. Now, these were atheists mostly, you know, some orthodox. That really puzzled me. It really puzzled me. Now, yeah, I've been preaching about the Bible. I mean, I believe it's true. Do you believe the Bible's true? But I hadn't, I didn't think that I'd force them. And as I thought about it, I, I began to realize that from their worldview, they'd, they'd grown up in a very different environment than I had. They grew up under communism. And under communism, this is the way it worked. Truth was what the government said was truth. Don't try to think anything else. Because what the government tells you, that's true. Do you understand how that works? Don't worry about what you saw with your eyes. What the news said happened is what happened. That's true. And if you disagree with it, we have a cold place known as Siberia where you can go and your family can go and you'll never see your friends again. That's the way they grew up, thinking and feeling. You know, I could tell you lots of stories. I don't have time for a lot of stories tonight, but... When I began to realize, talking to my translator, began to realize what this question really involved, I realized this young person was asking because they really thought that they had no choice. I mean, look, let's face it. God must, if, God, if, if what this, this, this kid from the United States is saying is true, then God must be more powerful than the government, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? And that what the Bible teaches? So if God's more powerful than the government, then... If we have to agree with the government, its idea of what truth is, then we must also have to agree with what God says is truth, or else we're going to get punished, right? And so I decided to answer that question. I remember one night, the next night, I came out and I I said, look, and I had the translator read the question in Russian, and and I I said, look, uh, this, this word force is really strong because, I mean, I watch you all walk in here on your own two feet. You know, no one dragged you in here kicking and screaming. The doors are still open. If you wanted to leave, you could leave. You're here of your own free will. We didn't force you to come here, right? There's freedom to come. But I said, I think the biggest, the bigger issue here, underlying issue, is, is you don't understand what freedom is about. You see, the God of heaven did not come to this earth to show us what was truth and then force us to follow it or else. Rather, when man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost any freedom of choice, didn't they? They they had one option. That's death. You couldn't choose eternal life except God said, I'm going to give I'm going to give them a choice. And God is so committed to our freedom of choice, friends, that he said, I'll die so that they at least have the choice between accepting me or not. You don't have to. I told them that night, I said, you don't have to accept Jesus. You don't have to agree with what the Bible's teaching. He's not going to punish you because you don't. You know, you'll, you'll pay the consequences of your own choices, right? The wages of sin is death. But it's not because God's going to punish you because he's mad at you. No. He, he is so committed to freedom. I told them, I said, the greatest symbol of freedom in the world is not the Statue of Liberty in New York's Harbor. The greatest statue, the greatest symbol of freedom is Calvary's cross. When Jesus stretched out his arms and he said, I'm going to die. So that they have a choice. They can choose to either reject me or to accept me. The real issue there in the former Soviet Union was in the understanding of freedom. Oh, aren't you glad the Savior of the world, yours and mine, is described in the book of Revelation, God's end-time prophetic book, as the Lamb? He's not forcing anybody. In fact, when we read about the 144,000, Revelation chapter 14 following the lamb wherever he goes. The lamb isn't driving them. That wouldn't be even a lamb to do anyway. The lamb is innocent. The lamb, is, the, lamb, the lamb doesn't coerce. The lamb is 
is not using deception or guile. The lamb is, is, is Jesus, and he gives us freedom to choose. That's the God that we find over and over in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, if the one who is holding eternal life knocks at the door of your house, what do you do? Do you leave him outside or do you invite him in? I, of course, you invite him in. You open the door. By opening the door and receiving Jesus, we receive the gift of eternal life that he brings. We invite him in when we yield to him, when we yield to his word, when we yield to his will for our lives. We invite him into our hearts. That's how we accept the free gift. We simply reach out and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being willing to give me freedom of choice. I want to use it to choose you. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Take control of my life. Take control of my heart. And when Jesus comes into our, our hearts, he not only becomes our friend and our savior, he becomes our Lord and our master all at the same time. What a wonderful, wonderful God we serve. So what are the three steps in, in inviting Jesus into our hearts? First, we confess our sins and they are forgiven. Is that good news? We confess our sins, they're forgiven. First John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing promise, friends. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. That means I have to say, Lord, I am a sinner, right? I need you. I can't, I've tried being good. It doesn't work. I need a miracle, and that's a miracle only you can work. And when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what we've done or where... I need a miracle, and that's a miracle only you can work. And when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what we've done or where we've been, no matter what kind of lives we've lived, even if we've lived upstanding good lives... No matter who we are, we can come to Jesus and accept that free gift of salvation. We can confess our sins and receive complete and total forgiveness. You know, I remember one time, I won't mention the country I was in. It was in a country that had been involved in war. I've been in many parts of the world where there's been a civil rest and up, up bloodshed, um, not usually at the time, although I've been... A, <laughs> I started wondering for a while what was going on when in about four or five years I was in three different countries while there were uprisings in the country. I was in the Philippines during People Power II when they overthrew the government. I was in um, Ukraine during the Orange Revolution. And then I was in Haiti during the uh, time when they overthrew Aristide. And I started wondering, is the CIA following me around or are people going to think I'm the CIA? I don't know. Um, I don't think the CIA caused any of those things. But anyway, it was... It's, it's a little unnerving when you're there and these things are happening. And um, I was in a country where there, were, there had been, there had been, they'd been in war. And I've spent time in Liberia and East Timor and all kinds of places where there have been lots of civil wars. But um, I, was, I was talking one night about these things. And um, after the meeting, this man came up to me. And just the way he approached me on the platform, I was, I was a little taken aback. He had, he had this air of... Authority. I mean, he walked. I mean, he walked just with such confidence towards me, and he was a big man, imposing man, and he was wearing a uniform, which, you know, I don't know what the uniforms mean or anything. But he um, he comes up and he shakes my hand, and he through a translator begins talking, and he talked about how 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 appreciative he was that tonight he learned for the first time that anyone, even he, could have his sins forgiven. And he said, he said to me, he said, you know, I've never known before tonight what it means to have peace in my heart. I began to learn as I talked to him that he was a high-ranking officer in the National Army. He had hundreds of men. I don't know. I don't remember. As I recall, it was like 600 men that served under him. So I don't know what that put him as, what rank. But he said, you know, when we were in war, and he named the place where they'd been fighting, he said, they taught us, they told us, they told us not to kill the children. But he said, the enemy would use the children to send messages. We had no choice. He said, for years, 
I've had nightmares. He said, you don't understand. We came home. And dozens, maybe even hundreds of my men have committed suicide. He said, Pastor, can you please, can you please come to the army base? My men need to hear this message. That there's a God who can forgive no matter what we've done. They need the peace that I've found here tonight. They need the understanding that there's a God that loves them even though they've done terrible things. You know, friends, I can't really relate to that. But you and I, we all should be able to relate because while we may not have killed children, we... Our sins killed Jesus. And our sins have caused hurt in other people's hearts. Our, our words, our choices, our jealousy or envy or lust or hatred or resentment, they've hurt people too. And they've separated us from Jesus. But it doesn't matter who you are, even if you're the ideal church mouse. Now all you do is gossip. <laughs> Whatever it is, we've all sinned, right? We've all been in a position where we need the salvation that only God can give us. So second, when we invite Him in, He becomes not only our Savior, but our, our Lord, changing our hearts and lives. You see, God does not just forgive us. He also gives us a new experience with Him. He gives us the opportunity to live a new life. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. For by grace you have been saved. We read this already, right? Through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works. But notice what it says in verse 10. For we are His what? Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do we do good works so that God will love us? Do we do good works so that God would save us? No, but when God has given us, He's going to... When He's given us salvation, when He's given us that new heart, when He's forgiven us for our sins and cleansed us from all righteousness, He is going to do a work in our lives. He's going to give us power to become the sons of God. Which comes first, salvation or the change? Too many times we try to get the cart before the horse. We decide, I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to be better. I'm going to try harder. No, give up. Because only Jesus can save me. Only Jesus John 8, verse 11, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But then what did he say? Now, these words were not, these words were not fearful to her. She wasn't saying, oh, my goodness, are you serious? I've got to do that. She was saying, are you serious? He believes that much in me. Are you serious? He thinks I can be an upstanding citizen. I can be a better person. Does God believe he can actually change us? Does God have that kind of power, friends? I believe he does. I believe he, he believes in us. Third, we have the assurance of eternal life. Um, he that has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, 12 and 13. These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we, we have our sins forgiven. God gives us power to new, live a new life. And He gives us assurance of eternal life. Oh, friends... I'm so thankful we have a Savior like this, aren't you? I believe that even tonight, in 2014, 2014, even in Dalton, Georgia, Jesus is still knocking at heart's doors. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful He's still, he's still here. He's still waiting. He's still listening. There's only one thing that Jesus can't do, and that is force open your heart's door. He's the Lamb, after all, isn't He? And so we have to make that choice we have to use the power that He's given, that, given to us. Tonight, maybe the most important decision we can make is the decision to accept Jesus into our hearts. Um, at each of your tables, your table leaders have a little decision card. And I just want you to pull those out right now. And I want every single one, every single person to have one. Should be some pencils there as well. 
And while you're getting those, I just want you to invite you to consider your decision. Is there anything in your life that would prevent you from, from opening your heart to heaven's lamb, to the lamb of the book of Revelation? Is there anything that would prevent you from giving it all to Jesus and letting him live, give you the gift of salvation, to give you freedom, to give you forgiveness? Isn't tonight a good night to make that kind of a decision? Isn't tonight a good night to make that choice? And so I invite each one of you now to just take this little card as we read it together. Do all of you have it? Does anyone not have a card? you need one brought to you? Anyone not have a card? I invite you to just take this little card, and as we read it together, I'm going to read it up here. You can see it here on the screen as well. And um, I invite you just to prayerfully select the options that best describe what the Holy Spirit has oppressed on your mind this evening. Why is this important? It's because Revelation's Lamb is coming again. And you know, Revelation chapter 17, it describes the Lamb coming again. And he's, going to, he's actually going to come as a conquering Lamb at that point um, for the first time. We don't have time to look there tonight. We're out of time. But if, if the first option impresses you, if this is, you can honestly answer this. The first option you can prayerfully check says, It is clear to me that Jesus' death provides the gift of eternal life. For all who believe. If that's clear to you tonight, um, just check that box. And what this card does, it helps me see if I'm communicating clearly. It helps me see if there's still questions. Um, because as we look more into the prophecies, I don't want anyone going away from this prophetic seminar and saying, I got scared tonight. <laughs> I want everyone to come with the full assurance of the Savior of Jesus Christ. So the second option says, um, if, you, if that's true of you, just check the first option. The second option says, um, I've never accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, but today I choose to accept His forgiveness for my sins and invite Him to be the Lord of my life. If this is the first time that you've wanted to say, God, I'm going to give you my all, and I'm going to quit trying to save myself, just, just check that box as well. The third box uh, affects, uh, applies to many. Perhaps you once knew the Lord but have wandered away. If so, there's no better time than now. This one is for you. I've wandered far from my walk with Jesus, but today I want to once again accept him as my Savior and Lord and return to a loving relationship with him. If that's your desire, just check that third box. And of course, every day is a good day to renew our commitment to Jesus. Amen? And um, the last option here is that I already trust in Jesus as my Savior from sin, but today I want to renew my surrender and commitment to him and thank him for his amazing love. What a wonderful God we serve. Just check that box if you would like to do so. And the last one there, if you'd like some more reading material on how to grow in Jesus, you can indicate that and we can try to give that to you. Revelation's Lamb, as I mentioned, mentioned 24 times in the book of Revelation. I think the author of Revelation, I think God wanted us to know that there's a Savior. Even in the last days of this earth's history, there's a Savior. If you can just finish those cards, fill out, those, um, fill out your name if you like. And um, I, I'm going to do something here tonight. I'm going to ask their table leaders to just collect those in the bucket. There's a bucket on every table. If you can just stick those cards in the bucket on the table. And you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to have a prayer, and we're going to pray over these cards. And so um, I'm going to invite the table leaders, as you fill up your buckets, as you get all the cards around the table, to just bring that bucket and bring it right up here to the front. And um, those, those buckets, those cards are representing your decisions. And I believe, I believe that God would have us um, have a prayer of dedication, a prayer of surrender as we do this tonight. In fact, if there's a burden on your heart tonight, if you want to come up with your table leader, if you want to come up and say, I want special prayer tonight, you can come up too. You can just join me right up here. And we're going to take just a moment to pray over these decisions. Jesus is the lion, but he's also the lamb. Are you thankful tonight? Are you thankful for that, Jesus? Thankful for that, Savior? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father heaven, we just thank you. We thank you that you are not only the lion, but you are the lamb. We thank you that you invite us to come to you just as we are. We can't save ourselves, but you can save us. Lord, we're going to be looking at some exciting truths and what's happening in the near future that we find in the book of Revelation. But we first need to know the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root and offspring of, 
of David, the bright and morning star. We want to know Jesus. So, Lord, tonight, if there's someone here who's made that decision for the first time, we just pray that you'll bless them. We know there's more, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need repentance. Lord, these cards represent our decisions. They represent the decisions that we're making. And so we just pray that as we dedicate these decisions to you, that you would take these decisions, and that you will not just have them be choices or lead on paper, but that you will do what you've promised to do, that you will forgive us for our sins, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you will give us power to become the sons and daughters of God, and that you will give us the assurance of eternal life. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.